Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, November 22nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could lunar explorers of the future be sucking air out of moon rocks? Could all of us? Plus, a device made from household objects that could expand the world's access to vaccines. And the psychological case for decorating for the holidays as early as you want. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Humans can't breathe on the moon unassisted. We know this. The moon's atmosphere is made up mostly of hydrogen, neon, and argon. No oxygen. But there is actually oxygen on the moon, and plenty of it. It's just not in the atmosphere. It's not gaseous. Instead, it's hiding inside of rocks, or regolith to be exact. John Grant, incredibly a professor of soil science at Southern Cross University, recently took to the conversation to explain how the top layer of regolith on the moon alone has enough oxygen to sustain the current population of humanity for 100,000 years. Now, if only we could all fit on the moon and figure out how to extract the oxygen from the regolith in a way to actually sustain 8 billion of us, or even, I don't know, 8 of us. But as you might expect, this is something that space agencies are already working on. Last month, NASA and the Australian Space Agency signed a deal for an Australian rover to go to the moon to collect rocks that could be the source of this maybe breathable oxygen. The rover and its rock collection will be a part of the Artemis program. Quoting Grant, Minerals such as silica, aluminum, and iron and magnesium oxides dominate the moon's landscape. All of these minerals contain oxygen, but not in a form our lungs can access. On the moon, these minerals exist in a few different forms, including hard rock, dust, gravel, and stones covering the surface. This material has resulted from the impacts of meteorites crashing into the lunar surface over countless millennia. The moon's regolith is made up of approximately 45% oxygen, but that oxygen is tightly bound into the minerals mentioned above. In order to break apart those strong bonds, we need to put in energy. You might be familiar with this if you know about electrolysis. On Earth, this process is commonly used in manufacturing, such as to produce aluminum. An electrical current is passed through a liquid form of aluminum oxide, commonly called alumina, via electrodes to separate the aluminum from the oxygen. In this case, the oxygen is produced as a byproduct. On the moon, the oxygen would be the main product and the aluminum or other metal extracted would be a potentially useful byproduct, end quote. And if we were able to do all that, we could get those enormous numbers that Grant pitched, enough oxygen for 8 billion humans for 100,000 years. Here's how he calculated that. According to NASA, humans need to breathe 800 grams of oxygen a day just to survive. Not even getting into the deeper hard rock of the moon, just using that regolith and assuming it goes down about 10 meters, and knowing that on average each cubic meter of regolith on the moon contains 1.4 tons of minerals, including 630 kilograms of oxygen, each cubic meter could have enough oxygen for a person to survive for a little over two Two years. Now, apart from that not accounting for how much oxygen we may lose in the extraction process, the main snag is, as Grant said, that extraction process breaking apart the bonds of oxygen from the other minerals requires a lot of energy, and some fairly intense industrial equipment. 
neither of which are currently in huge supply on the moon. So it would first take a number of years and substantial investments to charter and construct the instruments required onto the moon and develop a means of generating energy, probably solar, to power those instruments. But those exact goals, more tools and more energy on the moon, are being worked towards by agencies all over the world. Space resource utilization is a huge field right now, as researchers work to figure out how to use what exists on the moon, on Mars, and elsewhere, instead of having to just always bring everything with us. And indeed, Grant notes that a Belgium-based startup called Space Applications Services in coordination with the ESA's in-situ resource utilization mission is planning to send three experimental reactors to the moon by 2025, which are intended to improve the process of making oxygen via electrolysis. So while I don't think we should be planning to move all of us to the moon, it could be super useful for future lunar explorers to be able to have an alternate source of oxygen at their disposal. I mean, just think, regolith could actually be a useful resource instead of something annoying to vacuum off their clothes every time they get back in the lander. I was talking to my doctor the other day about the issues that their healthcare center is having fulfilling their orders of syringes recently. And it turns out this is an impending issue. With all these extra syringes needed for vaccines, it makes sense a shortage might happen. And it turns out India also started limiting their export of syringes last month to help with their own vaccination campaign, which on the offset, I can't exactly blame them for. But of course, the shortfall of two to four billion needles through the end of next year being projected by experts is expected to hit low-income African countries the hardest, per the New York Times. As a recent article from the World Economic Forum pointed out, while there has been a decent effort from international initiatives like COVAX to equitably distribute tests, treatments, and vaccines, the doses being sent by wealthy nations don't always come with the syringes needed to inoculate people. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has given a $3.9 million grant to a Kenyan manufacturer to help with some of the shortfall in that region, at least for now. But the World Economic Forum and UNICEF are calling for an end to what they are now calling syringe nationalism. But a new invention might be able to help. A team from Emory University and the Georgia Institute of Technology have developed something called the E-Patch, which uses electricity to inject certain vaccines, making injections less painful, more efficient, and much cheaper. They've developed it specifically for vaccines that use genetic material, as DNA and mRNA vaccines do, as opposed to more traditional ones that use a piece of the pathogen. mRNA vaccines themselves are less expensive to manufacture, but as we all remember from the stories about the cold chain, they require a lot of special handling that can make them inaccessible in some parts of the world. And making them more accessible was exactly the goal of the developers of the e-patch. Quoting Scientific American, For any vaccine to work, it has to get inside a person's cells, and the genetic material in mRNA and DNA vaccines needs a little extra help in crossing cell membranes. In the case of mRNA vaccines, including the ones currently being used against COVID-19, the mRNA is coated in a weak glob of fat called a lipid nanoparticle. These particles help the genetic material slip into cells, while also stabilizing the easily degraded molecules. But they also need to be kept frozen prior to injection, which means the whole vaccine requires storage at extremely low temperatures. DNA vaccines can go without freezing because they do not require lipid nanoparticles. They are more stable than mRNA even without that.
the added fat, and to break into cells, they instead use a vector virus, a modified virus different from the one being targeted. But these vaccines have their own drawbacks. Ongoing safety concerns about this mode of delivery and the fact that DNA vaccines tend to generate less of an immune response. One way to improve prospects for genetic material vaccines might be through electroporation, injecting the vaccine while delivering a very mild electrical shock, which prompts cells to temporarily open holes in their membranes and let the vaccine in. In theory, applying electroporation alongside genetic material vaccines could improve both effectiveness and accessibility. For mRNA vaccines, genetic material might be able to enter cells without lipid nanoparticles. This means the vaccines could possibly be stored at room temperature. For DNA vaccines, which are already stable at higher temperatures, researchers have higher hopes. They think electroporation would help generate a stronger immune response and perhaps make DNA vaccines more widely adopted. End quote. The electroporation method has been successfully demonstrated to increase DNA vaccine delivery and potency, but they've typically been expensive and bulky machines. The innovation of this new group, whose work was published earlier this month in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, is in part creating it with easily available parts that in total costs just a dollar. The e-patch uses a barbecue lighter's piezoelectric crystal with microneedles attached to the tip, and in early tests with DNA vaccines in mice, they found it was comparable to traditional electroporators. That said, it's still all very early days. The e-patch still needs to be tested with mRNA vaccines and larger animals and hopefully one day humans. But Saad Bamla of the Georgia Institute of Technology, who is a co-developer of the e-patch, told Scientific American that he views this as part of a larger frugal science ethos, saying, quote, I want people to think, if this guy can look at a barbecue lighter and think of a DNA vaccine delivery device, then what can I do? End quote. Some of you who celebrate Christmas may be waiting until after Thanksgiving to decorate, if you decorate at all, or perhaps until the 1st of December, or even later. I like to wait at least until after Thanksgiving and usually decorate on the first Sunday of Advent. But if you want to decorate even earlier and are scared of critiques from friends or family, you can tell them that the science backs you up. At least, lightly. It turns out that decorating for holidays and even decorating a bit early is really good for our mental health, which does kind of make sense based on the huge uptick we saw in people decorating for all different holidays during the first year of the pandemic. So first, decorating for the holidays, regardless of how early you do it, has been shown to make you appear more friendly to neighbors. This actually goes all the way back to a 1989 study in the Journal of Environmental Psychology that had participants rate the sociability and openness they perceived of anonymous houses just based on their exteriors, with the result that they overwhelmingly said houses with Christmas decorations seemed to have more sociable residents. But more recent studies have pointed to additional benefits, namely nostalgia, comfort, distraction, and anticipation. 
On Nostalgia, quoting Lifehacker, psychoanalyst and mindset coach Steve McCown furthered this idea when he told Unilad, In a world of stress and anxiety, people like to associate things that make them happy, and Christmas decorations evoke those strong feelings of the childhood. Decorations are simply an anchor or pathway to those old childhood magical emotions of excitement. End quote. And psychologist Deborah Sarani has talked about the dopamine spike we get from Christmas decorations. She says it could be related to chroma therapy or color therapy, an alternative therapy based on the idea that bright lights and colors can increase our energy levels and boost happiness. Take it with a grain of salt scientifically, but hey, bright shimmering lights and shiny tinsel definitely makes me smile, Christmas or not. Now, those are both effects that are relevant regardless of how early you decorate, although you could argue that the earlier you do, the more boost you might get in those happiness and comforting nostalgia feelings. But the longer lead time that you have, the better it might be if you're having a rough go of things this season. And, you know, like there's still a pandemic on, so who isn't? Psychologist Kelly Subchak wrote in Texas A&M Health last year, quote, The holidays, for many, is a special time of year filled with hope, joy, and excitement, all of which have been lacking in 2020. Decorating early may allow people to distract themselves from current stressors and focus on holiday memories and traditions. Distraction has been shown to reduce distress and anxiety as compared to rumination. For many, decorating may simply be a nice change in surroundings, as lights and tinsel can brighten up their home, end quote. And she also brings up that final piece, anticipation. This was a big one I talked about in the early days of this podcast as something that we were all suddenly lacking. When the pandemic first ripped through our lives, all of our plans were canceled. We were suddenly left without anything to look forward to. And that's not great for mental health. Quoting Subchak again, Neural imaging reveals the activation of the reward system of the brain and an increase of dopamine when there's an anticipation of a reward. Looking forward to happier times and surrounding oneself with decoration and reminders of a brighter future can increase anticipation and feelings of happiness. End quote. And Christmas is absolutely a season of anticipation. That's the whole point of celebrations like Advent, preparing for and counting down to Christmas. So if you need something to look forward to, starting the Christmas countdown a little early isn't a bad idea. And as a bonus, you'll get some of those dopamine spikes from the physical transformation of your space and maybe some comforting reminders of the good parts of growing up. Now the real question is, when do you take your Christmas decorations down? Personally, I'm a traditionalist and like leaving my decorations up until Epiphany Day on January 6th, aka the real 12th day of Christmas. I don't like leaving them up a day later than that, but with all these benefits and knowing how dismal January has the potential to be, maybe I'll at least leave up a few sprigs of evergreen throughout January. So Adele's latest album, 30, came out last week. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I downloaded it on Spotify so I can listen while I'm traveling this week. But in addition to dropping what will likely become one of the most decorated albums of the coming year, Adele also got Spotify to make a platform-wide change, the removal of the default shuffle button for albums. 
So Spotify users may know that when you select an album or playlist and hit the big green play button at the top, it automatically shuffles that album or playlist. I actually forgot that this was a feature because especially for albums, I always just automatically hit the first track instead of that big button because why would I want to shuffle an album? I mean, I get why you might for some, but like mostly if I am actually listening to an album in this day and age, I want the album experience as it was intended. And Adele feels the same way. She tweeted on Saturday, quote, We don't create albums with so much care and thought into our track listing for no reason. Our art tells a story, and our stories should be listened to as we intended. End quote. In response, Spotify tweeted, Anything for you, and then made the change. Now, the automatic shuffle feature on the big play button is supposed to have just been removed for albums, but it's not showing up for me on playlists either. And to be clear, despite what a lot of headlines and even full articles are reporting, you can still shuffle albums and playlists by clicking the shuffle button on the normal navigation bar where the skip and loop and play pause buttons are. It's just the automatic shuffle that was attached to that big green play button that's gone. Still, the move definitely shows the power Adele has in the industry, and while her tweet said this was her only request in our ever-changing industry, I wouldn't mind seeing her put her strength behind other changes that could have significant positive impacts on artists. You know, maybe talk to Spotify about better compensation for artists, especially smaller and independent ones. You know, just one retweet for the Union of Musicians Justice at Spotify campaign, just to see what happens. But until then, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.